What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, Texas is so back. According to at least one person. Preseason number one, according to one unnamed coach. Not everyone votes in the coaches poll, and we don't have the ballots until after the season. But I've narrowed it down to three potential candidates and one wild card. You ready for this? Yeah. Pat Narduzzi. Of course, the pit coach who loves to troll will troll you before a game. He'll troll you during a game. He'll troll you after a game. We can never forget 2017 Miami and Pitt regular season finality, regular season finale, Black Friday. And Pat Narduzzi calls his shot halftime interview and walks off. This is very much his thing to just be like, oh, yeah, Texas preseason number one. Let's have some fun with it. Let's watch the Internet burn down. Speaking of people who like to troll, Dana Holgerson, Houston coach in the state of Texas. He's joining the conference that Texas will be leaving. Kind of one of those like little underhanded, hey, you know what? We're just having a good time. We Everybody takes us too seriously. I think Dana Holgerson comes off as a coach that doesn't take himself very seriously, likes to troll a little bit. You saw the picture of that trophy that had the, the no pants thing after the, the bowl game against Auburn this past year. He posted the picture repeatedly yes. kind of with that. Very much his brand of humor, I think. Nick Saban. Give Texas the rat poison. Don't take the rat poison. Give it to them. They're the ones who, hey, get them believing that that they're the number one team in the country. Somebody out there thinks that they're the number one team in the country. Give them that rat poison and let them deal with all that. The wild yes, my, my pick is also Nick Saban. I think Nick okay. Saban's I think Nick Saban's new move is to do something like kind of as an example and then preach a whole sermon off of it. So I think that what he would do is you know give that vote and be like, hey, you know, that's that's just to say that's a guy that I really like. He's a guy who is in my heart, number one. And hey, number two, that's just to say that's where I hold him. So if he didn't hold that standard yes. himself, that's and, on and him. It's- and I could totally see the scenario, and I'm not the first person to say this, but Saban then is able to go into that week two matchup and say, look, they're, they're getting number one love. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that leads into my wild card. Lane Kiffin doesn't have a vote, but Kirby does. <laughs> Wait, excuse me. How does that work now? I don't know how it works with the coaches poll, who gets votes, who doesn't. I don't think it's a tenure thing. I don't. But... Uh, maybe maybe it is, and maybe I've just no because Sam Pittman has a vote. I, I don't know. I don't so know. So they just works. take away Lane's vote because they were like, we can't trust you with anything bigger than this football team. Maybe <laughs> we barely maybe. can trust you with this football team. We need to get you get you out of here because you're going to be voting for TCU or something. Maybe it's it's uh, sort of like with taxes, you have to get them get them in by a certain date. Otherwise, you he can just get, miss the date. You just miss the date. I wouldn't put it past him. So in this wild card scenario, Lane says. Kirby, put Texas at number one. Let's watch the internet burn down because, mm-hmm. again, anybody who votes Texas number one, a team that was five and seven last year that couldn't beat Kansas, and all, all it had to do was beat Kansas to get bowl eligible, um, that team is not number one in the country. I don't care if they added 50 people in the transfer portal who were former five stars. That's just not a team you put at number one. So if Lane says, let's watch the internet burn down, and instead of a first place for Georgia, Kirby's team, because – they're working against complacency. You instead give that vote to Texas. And then we all get to watch Saban tell us ahead of that week two game at Texas about Longhorns. Some some people think they're the number one team in the country. You shouldn't mess exactly. with them. Yep. It all kind of sets up pretty well because 
that text chain is is the the great equalizer. Lane doesn't have some deep coaching tree where he'd be able to go back and find this assistant that he gave a job to 15 years ago that's got an FBS head coaching job. He's not really one of those guys. Mm-hmm. But that text chain with Kirby, with all the Saban disciples, Muschamp on there that he made public like a year ago, whatever that was, that, that would be a great place of, oh, Kirby, you would never. Now that Kirby's got the new deal, he's got 112 million bucks. He doesn't have to worry about it, even if, even if we somehow figure out that it was him, which that's that's my biggest takeaway. We need to figure this out. We need to figure out who put Vandy as the SEC winner. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out who put Texas as the number one overall team in the country. The coaches full, unbelievable. I'm gonna I'm gonna just cross coaches off one by one. That's that's the way to do it. I have one taken off. It was not Joe Moorhead. I know that. There you go. Yeah, every every like Zoom press conference you're going to be on. Like, hey, coach, just like for a random bowl game. So I just got one question for you. Did you vote Texas number one 12 weeks ago? Like, what are you talking about? Guy? I got to know. I just have to know. And maybe it was somebody who meant to troll Tennessee. And they they just said to some assistant, because that's what we talk about with the coaches poll once the season yeah. starts anyways, and why we don't take it seriously is because we just think that some some office assistant is just filling this out. Yeah, just put UT at number put one. Put UT number one. Yeah. Right. What you took? You know, yeah, yeah, I love that orange. Okay, cool. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. Which, by the way, Tennessee didn't even make the coaches poll. Six SEC teams did. I don't take the coaches poll very seriously. But this is a little bit now reminiscent of – when Lauren and I found out that there was somebody in our neighborhood of 40 homes that has 10 grand worth of HOA debt, which yeah. that is nearly <laughs> impossible with where we live because our HOA is like 120 bucks a year. Mm-hmm. They, they've That's just impressive. At that point, like right? they pretty much own the neighborhood. They're like the Stalin of that neighborhood because it's like, come and take it. What are you going to do? <laughs> kind of. We've walked around our neighborhood and one by one, we'll just say, oh no, here's why this this person couldn't do this because this is a young family. They just moved in in the last five years or, or something like that. But mm-hmm. this has taken on a different kind of meaning. Thank you, Texas, for being back and giving us this glorious moment. Great show lined up today. John Talty is going to join us to talk about his new Nick Saban book that has been making the rounds everywhere, an interview that we recorded last week. And we've got Bold and Brash, Anybody But Your Team edition. Uh, We were going to do this podcast last week, had basically all of it recorded uh had we did do this podcast yes, <laughs> we, did. Directed. we did so if there's something that i say to will that he's like oh did we talk about this last week did we not that is probably why also on another note give us a little bit of grace we're dealing with a new mic setup for mm-hmm. this week so if something sounds a little bit off uh blame us don't give us a one-star review. We're just going through a mic transition right now. So that's probably why. If your audio sounds a little bit different, no, it's not just you. It's because we're trying to get right before the season. We're testing a couple of different things. So just be aware of that. We're ready that's- to hit some people wearing other jerseys, what we're doing. We're, we're at camp right now. Yes. We're kind of button heads. But once we get to the season, it's all going to be all the kinks are going to be ironed out. Yes. We, we're we at the point where we're tired of hitting each other. We just want to. Exactly. There we go. Yeah, that's what you might say. Okay. So we do some SEC coach rankings. You ready for that, Will? Absolutely. All right. These are official SEC coach rankings, which Will's just going to have to take mine blindly. And there's something you can do about it. No, I'm kidding. Yes. Uh, look, I, I, I want to say this. I always like to preface rankings by saying a few things because I know people get really upset with rankings. 
there are a ton of elite coaches in the SEC. So I am fully aware that I'll be disrespecting a few of these coaches. I, I know that there are coaches who are not in the top half of the SEC who I think are top 25 coaches nationally. So that means if I have your coach at number eight, number nine, I do not think that they suck by any means. This is not necessarily a ranking of most accomplished coaches. That's part of it. That is not all of it. If you just want to go by number of wins, or if you just want to go by who's won a national championship, who hasn't, in my opinion, that's kind of a boring way to do it. Those mm -hmm. things are important, but there are other things to look at that lacks context. And in that thinking, if we just did that up until last year, if we we're doing a ranking of national coaches, then you would have had to have put Mac Brown ahead of Kirby Smart just mm -hmm. because Mac Brown won a national title in 2005. With all due respect to Mac Brown, who is now the boss of our best friend, Gene Chizik. He's not in that group, at least not right now. So there, there's a touch of recency bias, a touch, because this is about who I'd want to build my program around right now. We're looking at the past. We're looking ahead as well. So hopefully I'll be able to kind of add some context and explain these rankings. Are we ready? Absolutely. Okay. Number 14, Clark Lee. Number 13, Brian Harson. Number 12, Billy Napier. Yes, we will talk about that. <laughs> Still funny the second time. We will talk about that. Number 11, Shane Beamer. Number 10, Eli Drinkwitz. Number nine, Josh Heupel. Number eight, Mike Leach. Number seven, Sam Pittman. Six, Lane Kiffin. Five, Jimbo Fisher. Four, Mark Stoops. Three, Brian Kelly. Two, Kirby Smart. One, Nick Saban. I disagree with my colleague, Matt Hayes, who wrote about Kirby Smart being number one coach in the SEC overtaking Nick Saban, or number one coach in college football. We can agree to disagree on that as well. Um, I debated, I don't know that we need to really debate one versus two very much. In my opinion, like we would need to see several more years of, of Kirby smart, either getting to a national championship, winning a national championship, and then Alabama falling off instead of being the team that has been to six of the last seven national championships. Yeah. It feels like every couple of years, like the national media writers are just like, who's the guy who's overtaken Nick Saban. And all of those guys are still below Nick Saban like yes. 12 years later. So yeah. even I, as, as, as optimistic as I am for Alabama's failure, eventually in, in the year of our robot Lords, I don't think it's anywhere near right now. Agreed. I debated three through five, the most. And just in case you need a little reminder, three, Brian Kelly, four, Mark Stoops, five, Jimbo Fisher. Um, I am well aware that people listening to this, a and fans listening to this will remind me about Jimbo Fisher winning a national title, which is something that neither Mark Stoops nor Brian Kelly accomplished. It was also nine years ago in an mm -hmm. entirely different postseason. A and BCS national title is what he wants yes, to be clear. The last BCS national championship. Nobody can take that away from Jimbo. And in my opinion, it's what still kind of puts him in this group of one of the best coaches in the country. But mm -hmm. if you're asking me about who I think is a better coach right now, I think Stoops and Kelly have done more with less talent to show that they're on that level. In the last five years, Will, how many times did Brian Kelly win 10 games? Uh, I believe all five, right? Correct. All five. Yep. What about Stoops? Two. Two. And Jimbo? Well, when we first recorded this podcast, it was National A&M Day. It was 8 and 4. And I can say just as emphatically today, he has zero 10-win seasons at Texas yes. A&M. Zero. And part of that is because obviously 2020 was the COVID season, so it's covid shortened season. They mm. had their best AP finish since 1939. So that's a little bit of a caveat, but still, 
you could say, well, you know, Brian Kelly wasn't facing SEC competition, so he really shouldn't count there. I'd actually argue that Notre Dame plays a highly competitive schedule because they have as many power five regular season foes as the ACC or the SEC usually plays. There are a few exceptions to that. In the last five years, though, Stoops, Jimbo, they have as many AP top 25 finishes as each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of those coaches was at Kentucky. The other was at preseason number three, Florida State, and then four years at A&M, where we know the resources are a little bit different. A little bit. And conference play the last five years. So that includes Jimbo's 2017 at Florida State. Mm -hmm. Jimbo, 24 and 17. Stoops, 21 and 21. So a three-game difference. Slight, teeny, teeny advantage for Jimbo there, but I'd argue that's almost a wash. Mm -hmm. Against AP top 25 teams last five years. Jimbo, 7 and 13. Stoops, 7 and 11. This is where I'm going to get you. This is where I'm really going to convince you. Yep. Let's go. Look at the 247 Sports Talent Composite Rankings the last five years, right? We reference this very often, especially as we talk about teams that we feel like can actually win a national championship. Mm -hmm. 2017 Florida State, Jimbo Fisher, number five in that department. 2018, his first year at A&M. Number 16, 2019 at AM, he's at number 12 nationally. In 2020, he moves up to number 11. And then last year in 2021, he was number eight in terms of the 247 talent composite rankings. Meanwhile, Kentucky during those five years has never been better than number 26. And yet, what Mark Stoops and Jimbo Fisher have done, very comparable. Mm-hmm. Let's take it a step further, though. NFL draft number since Jimbo Fisher joined the SEC. So this is, you can only go 2019 to 2022, of course, because you can't give Jimbo credit for 2018, the 2018 NFL draft, because obviously you you, you get what I'm saying. Right, yeah. So in that stretch, Jimbo Fisher, 17 players selected in the NFL draft. Mark Stoops, 17 players selected in the NFL draft. I love that stat so much. That blows my mind because you can literally go through and think about those guys at Kentucky. Think about Josh Allen. Think about some of the DBs they've had come through. Think about the, the receivers they've had come through. And it's like all of those guys were studs. And then you think about some of the AM guys, and it's like they almost came out worse than they came in. Like our boy Weidemeyer is a great example. It seems like Stoops takes guys that are three stars and gets them into the draft. And AM takes guys that were already five stars and kind of gets them taken mid round like flyers. And, and to be fair, Weidemeyer came in as this under-recruited type of guy. And I, yeah. I, like, I'll, I'll be the one person that that's kind of defending him after the, the rough pre-draft process that he had. And he was a three-star recruit, came in mm-hmm. in the same class as number one overall tight end, Baylor Cup, who obviously has just not been able to stay on the field at AM. It's really frustrating. But So I'll give Jimbo Fisher and his system the credit for being able to yield the tight end that did those things, who never left the field. But this is kind of where this argument if you're one of those people saying you're absolutely wrong, you're not giving Jimbo Fisher enough credit, you're looking at too much at recency bias, consider this point. And this is very telling. Jimbo Fisher's starting quarterback goes down 2017 season opener, DeAndre Francois against Alabama, and mm-hmm. then 2021, game number two against Colorado when Haynes King goes down. The offense goes into the toilet in both instances. Mm-hmm. Mark Stoops' starting quarterback goes down in 2019, and Lynn Bowden happens. He sure did, Connor. Mind you, it's Jimbo Fisher who's the offensive guru, Mm -hmm. and Mark Stoops, the defensive-minded guy, 
was the one who troubleshot the quarterback situation better by realizing that Lynn Bowden, his star receiver who played quarterback in high school, that him going to play quarterback gave him his best chance to win. And that's what they were able to do to salvage that 2019 season. After a while, it really looked like they were struggling and they were going to get just pummeled throughout all of SEC play. I've just been more impressed with Mark Stoops and Jimbo Fisher. And and that's okay. That's what this hold on, hold on, hold on. So that interesting note on that, right? Is like one of those 10 win teams for Mark Stoops didn't really have a quarterback. And like, no, 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 no. He didn't win 10 games with Lynn Bowden. No, 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 no. I know, but I'm talking about neighbor Terry. You're talking about neighbor Terry Wilson, 2018. Yes. Okay. Understood. Understood. That's what I'm saying. So at the end of the day, he has a defensive team that is knows its identity and he does everything he needs to win within the confines of that. And Jimbo was seen as this guy who, like you said, offensive guru, great recruiter. Like he definitely has like the brand name recognition of a college football coach. But that just goes to show that like for him to be successful, he needs lots of things to go right. He needs to have a talent advantage. He needs to have great blocking. He needs to have all these different things. Whereas with Mark Stoops, it just seems like, hey, get the best 11 guys out there. Line it up. Let's play some ball. If we can have a guy who looks good 40% of the time and he's our best option, we're going to get that and we're going to look kind of goofy, but we're going to win games, you know, 17-14. And that's going to be our brand as opposed to like the Calzada show last year, which take out the Alabama game. And it was like, I mean, just being nice. Like, obviously, there's a kid, there's a young guy, but it looked like he was not fit to play. It looked like he never played quarterback before. Whereas like Bowden, it was like, okay, yeah, I used to play quarterback. I'm a little bit more of an athlete now, but we'll figure this out together. Like you said, two of those Jimbo seasons got completely nuked by a quarterback. And I understand that last year was not necessarily a lost season there, but if you factor in that they beat Alabama and then where their season has gone from They're there. They're number three defense in the country. Yes. That's another, that's another thing that we forget or I forget about looking back at that season is like, Okay, all they need to do is be average on offense, and they beat some of these teams. They could beat an Arkansas or an Ole Miss, two teams that are ranked way lower than them in the coaches' poll for some reason this year. But anyway, so, yeah, it's like as soon as something goes slightly wrong, the offensive guru part of Jimbo just falls apart, and he's just like, well, didn't have my guy. doesn't count. Let's talk about the Kelly part of this as well, um, Mm -hmm. because I I think there are people who would say Jimbo Fisher is a better coach than Brian Kelly, and Brian Kelly is really overrated because they think Notre Mm -hmm. Dame has been overrated these past years. If your entire reason – why Brian Kelly isn't a good coach is related to the lack of playoff success. Tell me this. Do we realize that there are four active coaches who have won a playoff game? That's it. Smart. Yeah. It's smart. It's Saban. It's Dabo. It's day. That's the list right there. Brian day is one playoff win. Uh, Dabo's last playoff win came three years ago. And up until this year, Kirby was the guy who was considered to be underachieving at Georgia. I'd put all four of those guys ahead of Brian Kelly, but even though he's about like halfway responsible for the fact that Notre Dame has two wins versus AP top five teams since 1999 and 14 of those losses, 14 of those 21 losses or by three scores or more. um, If you actually bump out Brian Kelly's record against AP top 25 teams and not just look at top five, Mm -hmm. you'd probably be surprised at Notre Dame against AP top 25 competition. Brian Kelly went 23 and 23. Mm-hmm. If you're going 500 against AP top 25 teams, you're pretty good. You're you're doing things very well. I think that there are a lot of people who lose sight of that. He went 12 and 9 in those games, AP top 25 foes in the last five years. And against AP top 25 teams not named Alabama or Georgia, Brian Kelly was 12 and 6 against those teams. All right. Yep. I realize that's part of it. That's part of it. 
But still, remember that and don't just base that on how he performs against Alabama or Georgia. That's what's preventing him from being in that same group as Kirby Smart and Nick Saban, of course, but don't diminish all that he's done at Notre Dame. Here's the list of coaches riding an active streak five consecutive seasons with double-digit wins against a Power 5 schedule. That's all we're talking right. about here. Yeah. Saban, Dabo, Kelly. Not even Kirby or Lincoln Riley got there because of COVID shortened 2020. And mm-hmm. Ryan Day is only three years into being a head coach. I expect that he will soon have his own active streak of of, of you know consecutive double-digit win seasons. You get what I'm saying? Ryan Kelly's one of the best coaches in the sport by any metric. Okay. We're not saying he's better than Nick Saban, but he is definitely on any sort of short list. And that's why I have him at number three, despite the fact that he hasn't faced the, the sec schedule just yet. We can say all of that while acknowledging it probably wouldn't be the best look for him. If Marcus Freeman just started ripping off top five classes at Notre Dame every single year and all these resources that they're working, all these different things academically that they're working against playing as an underclassman, all those different things, recruiting wise, that, that would be tough, right? That'd be a tough pill to swallow. But I think that Brian Kelly has a chance to be considered one of the top five coaches in the 21st century if, of course, he gets a ring at LSU. That's that's the key caveat. But for those who are just like saying that, that Kelly doesn't belong in that group, don't realize how few coaches there are who win big for a sustained period of time at this level. I have a quick side thought, but I, I know you've got a lot of thoughts. Go ahead. <laughs> You're just watching me open my mouth and close it. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing about Brian Kelly, right? So as a Notre Dame slanderer, okay, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys, I, as a kid from Baton Rouge, was watching Notre Dame and going, wow, those guys are really great fundamentals. They're blocking and tackling. I mean, they can't beat Alabama, but no, I was right there along with you guys. Um, I, I just want to say In the this internet way. trenches. No, in the internet <laughs> trenches, fighting these wars, throwing mud on Brian Kelly's name. But at the end of the day, you know, on one hand, the 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 way that Notre Dame has stayed relevant when other legacy programs talking about Nebraska, USC until recently, they haven't really played yet, but we're going to assume they're coming back. T- Texas, Miami. Tennessee, as much as I hate to say it, those teams that have been these legacy names that have kind of been, you know, up against it. Notre Dame has been the one with the hardest, like not sanctions, but what am I looking for? Obstacles to overcome. And Brian Kelly is the winningest coach in Notre Dame history. So when you're looking at hiring a guy, what I said from the beginning is you want me to be mad at this hire? You want me to be mad that we're hiring the winningest active coach in college football because he has more wins than Nick Saban when you factor in his, I believe it's Grand Valley State, Grand his Valley D2 State, yeah. days. Um, when you when you factor in all of that, it's like when you're, when you're firing a coach and you're hiring another coach, you're not always going to be able to get Urban Meyer. Okay, but this is pretty close. This is like a tier right below that. And I'd say, too, if you are, you know, a random SEC fan, if you're an Arkansas fan, Ole Miss fan, whatever, and you're sitting there rattling your saber, oh, Brian Kelly hasn't won um, hasn't won in the playoffs. Hey, man, Coach O is available. You guys want to fire your guy and hire Coach O because he won two college football playoff games? Do you think that's the end-all be-all? you think that if you, if you win college football playoff games, you are, like, king? That's not how it works, man. Everything is different. I would rather have sustained success than take a flyer on like a hotshot OC. And at the end of the day, what Brian Kelly is, is a floor raiser. I do also appreciate that you are talking about five years and six years ago, he had like a 500 season. That was terrible year. I know that happened. I'm not trying to sit here and be like, yeah, that didn't. But for every other year of his career, Brian Kelly has been a floor raiser. And that's the best thing you could hope to be in the SEC when you're talking about 
realignment, NIL, transfers, all these different rules. You want a guy who has been steady and stable. And yeah, I mean, when you look at him versus a Jimbo Fisher or a Mark Stoops, I think he's about right where he needs to be. Now, as we're going to talk about some guys later in this list, he might come to the SEC and struggle. You know, it's the hardest league in America. And that might even affect his legacy if he struggles. But all we can do is look at what he's done recently. It's not about 10 years ago at Cincinnati. It's about last year they were almost in the college football playoff. How many teams can really say that? So, yeah, like I said, I'm, I never sugarcoat the Brian Kelly thing. I think he's a goofus every time he talks. It sends a tingle down my spine, and I hope he stops talking. We talked about this in media days, but you just can't deny the record and the things he has done at a program that has no business being relevant. Can we do a fun side tangent and take a break from SEC coach rankings? We'll get back to it in just a second here, but mm-hmm. talking about Brian Kelly and Urban Meyer, another person that you brought up, it, at, threw this out there on Twitter, and I think it's a really fascinating discussion. Mm-hmm. Who I would rank as the top five coaches in the 21st century. Anything prior to the year 2000 does not count. Keep that in mind. I think in this discussion, your three automatic locks are going to come up and deserve to be on this list no matter what. Saban, Urban, Dabo. No, mm-hmm. no issues with that whatsoever. I don't think you can include Spurrier if the argument is just 21st century, even though obviously he led South Carolina to unprecedented heights. He has the two seasons with Florida and 21st century. Like all this, I, I get that. Totally get that. I don't know if you can if you could put him in that group if it's just the 21st century. He right. and Bobby Bowden would probably be the two guys who kind of get screwed by the 21st century caveat because Bobby Bowden only had one top 10 finish in the 21st century. If we're just factoring the last 30 years, the last 40 years, very, very different. Although technically, Bobby Bowden, somebody is going to say he won a national title the first week of January in the year 2000. But it was Love the 1999. Those, those are my favorite people in the world, people that say things like that. Anyway. Well, actually, crap. Yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. The uh, the in the conversation. So if we have two spots to fill, I would give you know what I would give one of those two remaining spots to Pete Carroll. I, I think he has to be in there. I, I realize the, the sanctions and, and whatnot. Still, it is so hard to repeat. I mean, so hard. Only three teams have repeated since 1980. That's a crazy thought, and he was one of them. I think that kind of mm-hmm. puts him in that category. So if four of those five spots are occupied, you've got Bob Stoops. Les Miles, Jim Tressel, Mac Brown, and then I'd put Kirby in there as someone who has a ring, has coached in multiple national championships. Um, some would say Gary Patterson is worthy of that. I was about be- to say Gary Patterson deserves at least conversation. I wouldn't put him top yeah. five, but probably top 10. You know. Yeah, a, a mention. Um, just two decades at TCU, obviously. Six top 10 finishes at TCU. Darn impressive. Yep. But it would be tough to put him in that category without without the ring if we're talking about just those five. And that's probably the same thing that would hold up somebody like a Mark Rick from getting into that conversation as steady as he was during the 21st century. That'd be a little bit tougher. It is... I probably here's here's the way I'd probably do this. So for that last spot, Stoops, Trestle, Kirby. Have to argue between those three, in my opinion. And it mm-hmm. is really hard not to project with Kirby. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. also hard not to factor in how Oklahoma instantly got better once Stoops retired and kind of gave the reins to Lincoln Riley. Yep. I, it's so hard to get that out of your mind because we should just be evaluating the work that they've done, not necessarily the way that things played out after them, how we expect things to play out. 
your years from now. And then Trestle, you could go back and forth on because Ohio State is on its third different dominant coach of the 21st century alone. But then if I want to say, hey, I can make the argument for Trestle because they had fallen off in those two years before he had got there with John Cooper. And then boom, they go to the natty year two, Maurice Claret, you know how that plays out. But mm -hmm. that's probably how I would break that down. I might give a slight edge to Stoops in that argument, then Kirby could be knocking on the door in there in a very short period of time. But how, how would you handle that? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, you know, if Kirby just decided tomorrow he got struck by the Lord and wanted to be a pastor, I still think his resume is about where Stoops is, if not a little bit better. And I know that we're not about projecting, but think about how unlikely it would be from this point for him to coach at the same place for an additional 15 years and win zero national titles. Do because the side-by-side -side of two through six. Stoops, like their year two through six between Stoops and Kirby, and it's it's mm -hmm. really, really similar. Well, the thing that's crazy, too, about Kirby is he has that like Saban-esque like machine of recruiting and NIL yeah. to where even if you're average with that level of talent, you're going to be winning like nine, 10, 11 games. And like we saw it with like the Fromm years that were like they're really conservative on offense, but they just have these creatures on defense and they're just going to sit here and win the East every year. And so another thing about Stoops that's really interesting is he came in as a D.C., right? He was uh, Spurrier's D.C. And by the end, his defenses, his defenses were horrible. So like you're right. You haven't, we haven't seen like the downfall of Kirby, but at the same time, we've seen Kirby adapt in ways that like, I don't think Stoops ever did. I think he just said, this is going to sound so disrespectful to our future, like Oklahoma fan, SSC guys, I get it. But, <laughs> but he just kind of sat out there in the desert and beat up on Baylor for like the last five, 10 years of his career and didn't really like, wasn't really even in the converse. Like after ah. Sam, after Sam Bradford, you know what I'm saying? Like those teams were good. You know, I'm not, I'm not like Jermaine Grisham stand right here. What's all right? playoff with Baker? He you did, for that. but that defense was horrible. I mean, they lost. Yeah. They lost a shootout to Georgia. They were, they were terrible. <laughs> they were terrible in 2018 too, though. I mean, yeah. they were terrible with with that defense as well. So it wasn't. You know, I don't know if I could put that that all on Stoops. Lincoln Riley obviously had his issues figuring I'll, I'll out. I'll put you like this: if, if Kirby's defense is ever that bad, he's not going to make it that long. He's going to have a heart attack screaming Fair. on the sidelines. I mean, put you like that. He'll retire. He'll pull an Urban Meyer before he sees his defense give up. You know, 48 points in the playoff game or yeah. whatever. Okay. Yeah, that's that's fair. But I think it's a really interesting discussion. If you just, again, just focus on the 21st century, not oh, yeah. coaches who have coached in the 21st century, because it's so hard then not to factor in stuff that happened in the 80s and 90s and, and use that. But if you just focus on the, these last couple decades, really fun discussion to be able to have. Okay. Back to SEC coach rankings. Let's do it. Um, six through eight was pretty rough as well. Trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, if you forgot, I had Lane at six. And then I had Pittman at seven and Leach at eight. You could make a case that I'm probably knocking Leach a little bit too much and that I should give him more patience at Mississippi State because there's a roster overhaul that comes with installing the air raid and doing all those different things. And if he takes off in year three, maybe he's a guy that kind of moves up. I, I don't know. But mm -hmm. I, I just think that guys like playing for Pittman and Lane more. And if you ask me who I'd rather have this year or the next five, I think Leach is an easy number three in that discussion with Pittman and Lane, despite the fact that with Leach, you're obviously guaranteed a top five passing offense. That's why I at least have him in the middle of the pack in the SEC. Mm -hmm. um, Lane just delivered Ole Miss its best regular season win total in program history. And that came mostly 
with Matt Luke's players, some of whom were even part of sanctioned recruiting classes because they were mm-hmm. on probation through 2020. Granted, there were some really good players, obviously. Jerry Neely, Matt right. Corral. Pretty good. Guys, yeah. <laughs> they were not scrubs, okay? They're, they were Elijah Moore. I uh, ever heard of him? Yeah, he's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Lane has that thing rolling. I mean, he does. That's why I laugh when somebody says, do you think Ole Miss peaked in 2021? And I'm like, no. <laughs> how, how can you have how can you have peaked if you're the coach who didn't even recruit the majority of the players on the roster? I, I just mm-hmm. don't necessarily buy that. It doesn't mean that you're guaranteed more success. I just don't necessarily like putting a cap on their success. I, I don't think that they have a, a national championship ceiling in this era. Things would have to drastically change in order for that to happen. But is Listen, there a will tell you that if you ever ask him, like, hey, I can't can't compete with Alabama. They're just paying <laughs> right. all their players. We're poor in Mississippi. It's like, buddy, relax. Like, you don't want you're not supposed to say that. It doesn't help you. Well, I, I mean, it, maybe it does, though. Maybe it does in this era. And that we'll kind of wait and see how that plays out. If that's gonna, if that's gonna be the thing that gets in the way of Lane staying at Ole Miss through 2026, if the playoff expands, and then maybe Ole Miss has more of a chance to be able to get to the playoff if the if the field expands to 12. Is he still going to be there? I don't know. Does he feel like he just gets beat in NIL all the time? We yes. will wait and see. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. But uh, you just kind of don't know. But for now, I have Lane at number six. And then Pittman, I'd love to know how many coaches in America, and we, we don't have a definitive answer to this, but I'd love to know how many of them could have walked into that disaster situation and cranked out a nine-win season in year two. We talk mm-hmm. about it a lot because it's remarkable. You go back and you read the things that were being said, written, everything about Arkansas in 2019, and to think of where they're at right now is just it is one of the better accomplishments that we've seen by an SEC coach in the 21st century. It really is. To think that when he started at Arkansas that they hadn't won an SEC game in over a 1,000 days, and to do that in the SEC West with how good it's been the last couple of years, I think that's why I give Sam Pittman the benefit of the doubt. If you're filling out one of these top 25 coach rankings of all the coaches in college football, you have to put Pittman in that group because Mm -hmm. even though it's only two years and you want to see how he handles it and that's what's going to be the thing that kind of can move him up maybe into that top 15 group and if we're talking about him being a better coach than mark soups or something like that but still i just think that you have to give him credit for that specific accomplishment and I, i just don't think that all of us right now like fully process how difficult that was for him in that first year you don't have to think that he's going to start winning like 10 games every year because spoiler alert, nobody pretty hard to do that in the SEC West. Yeah. Yeah. Sources say sources say that, um, yeah, that just does not happen in in this league. Even LSU had a four year stretch from 2014 to 2017 where they didn't win 10 games once. And we think about LSU as the model of stability. I didn't wake up choosing violence. Well, listen, that's a fact. I can't be mad at a fact. That's not your opinion. They, they did not win 10 games those years. There was a hurricane though. I will say that. As people forget. People forget yeah. about the hurricane, all right? So. Can't forget about that, yes. But I, I just love the way that Sam Pittman and has been able to build his staff. I, I think authenticity in this day and age is really hard to come by, and he is not lacking in that. So that's why I gave him the nod over the admittedly more accomplished Mike Leach. 9 through 13. Can I, can I say something real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um. So I think personally, I think you're right up up next to my point i personally would put Pittman above lane kiffin 
Um, I think okay. that the situation that Pittman walked into was one of the worst situations in SEC history, and it is not hyperbole. Um, yeah, they lost to North Texas by like 30 points. <laughs> it was horrible in these streets. Like when we talk about like how bad, and I'm not like saying this isn't me saying you're wrong, but like when we do the whole like Ole Miss was in trouble, that's like a oh, they were getting blown out by Alabama in trouble. It's you know what right. I'm saying? That's not like a oh, like a team that should maybe be D2 comes into town for homecoming and embarrasses your whole state. Like that's where that's where um Pittman was walking into. And at the same time, like Lane Kiffin is a great offensive coordinator and I'll give him credit for that. But I think Pittman has answered a lot more of the questions that Lane has personally. I think that Sam Pittman, we were worried about, can he be a CEO? Can he, can he like handle a program? Can he be like a business type executive as a head coach? And all he has done is hired two of the best coordinators in the SEC, right? When we talk about um both offense and defense. And then when you look at Lane, it's like, well, I mean, their defenses haven't been very good, to be honest. Their offenses have been awesome, obviously, but he hired DJ Durkin. I mean, is that a good hire to you? Do you think that was a good thing? I mean, <laughs> DJ Durkin surpassed low expectations for me because I knew how bad it was when he was right. coming in. And the fact that he was poached by AM for a $2 million contract suggests that Lane knew what he was doing. I don't think that's how that works. I think AM spending money does not equate to a good decision. They spend fair. money on everything out there. Okay, but- sure. All I'm saying is if you look at those hires, like it's very easy to give the um to give like the edge to Pittman. Whereas like for Lane, okay, so like that's more or less what I'm saying. With Lane, it's like you're an upgraded offensive coordinator, kind of like Sean Payton. You are great on that side of the ball, but you don't really care about the other side. And I think we've kind of seen that to this point. But with Pittman, it was like he was almost like a coach O vibe that was like, okay, well, you're a player's coach. You're like a big down, dirty, like big old boy who like works with the O-line. Can you surround yourself with a great staff and i think his staff has been way better um so i i would say that and obviously old miss is you know what like one point better last year they had that crazy shootout um but i think that considering where they both started i think that Pittman has done more with less if that makes sense fair yeah perfectly fair uh, and uh they could go back and forth in these rankings mm-hmm. over the course of the next few years and you know god willing they'll have plenty of battles in the sec west oh i hope man Gosh, that th- their their games have like quietly that Arkansas Ole Miss rivalry over the course of it's so insane. <laughs> it's it's nuts. It's absolutely. I mean, the fact that we've done two different Arkansas Ole Miss games and it just meant more tells you everything you need to know about you know the, the Henry Heave and all those all those different things that they've had so far, and even the, the game that they had you know twenty twenty with the the all the interceptions, the one arm bandit game from Grant Morgan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those games have been great. Hopefully, they'll be. It'll be a great back and forth between those teams moving forward. One of my buddies was talking to me the other day. He's like, hey, remember that shootout between Ole Miss and Arkansas? And I just started uh-huh. listing them. But he was talking about the one that I think was in like 02, back in like the, oh. I want to say the Houston Nut days that, that for Ole Miss. And like, that was like the longest game in college football history. And I, but I was like listing other games. It took me like five or six games to get there because they've all been insane. That's telling. Uh, here's yeah. If we're if we're doing an Arkansas Ole Miss, it just meant more game every single year because it's it's just too crazy and it's it's one of the three best games in college football. That that'd be a great sign. I'm here for mm-hmm. that. Okay, nine through thirteen. Uh, a reminder. Um, we're we're gonna get some upset people with this. Maybe maybe the most upset probably. And I you know where I'm going with this. Not so, me. <laughs> I had Heifel at nine. I had Drinkwitz at 10, Beamer at 11, Billy Napier at 12, and Brian Harson at 13. Okay. I thought. <laughs> Go on. We're going to get. We're, I promise you we will get to Billy Napier. I, I thought Josh Heifel surpassed my low expectations year one to win seven regular season games, produce his fourth consecutive top 10 offense. That's a stat that I really like. 
And I, I thought that roster was not going to be in position to to do what it did year one immediately with how much they struggled with Jeremy Pruitt. And it turns out, well, Jeremy Pruitt having the controls over an offense, at least somewhat loosely, probably led to why we thought that going into 2021. Right. Billy Napier only at 12. Not ahead of Beamer, not ahead of Drink. Some Florida fans are going to say, you are an idiot get out of here. You're already down on Billy Napier. No, 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 no. I've gone on record saying, I think Billy Napier could end up being the single best hire of this 2021 cycle. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. When you consider who he's up against, Brian Kelly, Lincoln Riley, Marcus Freeman, Mario Cristobal, all these different guys. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am not mincing words when I say that, trust me, but he's at this spot for a reason. So I'm going to tell you the, the, the accomplishments, the good first, and we're going to do a little sandwich thing, a little trick to, to compliment kind of sandwich. sandwich. Said. Yes, that's what it's called. At Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette, whatever you want to call it. When he was with the Rangers. UL. Hey, buddy, UL. <laughs> Long time listeners will remember that. Was it you that got an email? So basically, if I you call Marla them, did. yeah, there you go. If you call them ULL or like Louisiana Lafayette, you get like a stern email from one of their oh, ADs. It's like, we're the we're Louisiana. And buddy, no, you aren't. Anyway, yeah, people are sensitive. Before Billy Napier got there, they had never won more than eight games at the FBS level. Of course, three consecutive 10-win seasons, finished number 16, number 15 the last two years. Lone losses coming on a last-second field goal against that historic Coastal Carolina team 2020, and then mm -hmm. on the road at Texas last year. But here's the problem. Mm -hmm. Drink beat Napier twice in 2019, his one year that he was at App State. And Louisiana didn't get over the hump until Drink left for Mizzou. Again, it's Kyle, just one I year. I just want you to go. Are you saying that Billy Napier's wins are Mickey Mouse because he never no, beat no, no. Drink? No, I'm saying <laughs> the fact that in the Sun Belt, right. the mighty, mighty Sun Belt, right. Drink got him twice. Mm -hmm. It was his first year there. Napier had been there. I think it was, what, was that year three that he was there. Mm -hmm. So maybe, I mean, I don't know that you can make the argument, well, this program was at a much different place. Obviously, I think we view I think we view App State as one of the better group of five programs in the country. Right. And I think Billy Napier was trying to and did successfully, in my opinion, turn Louisiana Lafayette, the Raging Cajuns, into one of the better group of five programs in the country. You finished in the top 20 in the last two years. Obviously, that confirms that. But he beat him twice. He mm -hmm. beat him twice in the same year. I think that has to count for something before Billy Napier has coached a game in the SEC. And also an eight and 10 record in SEC play in those first two years. That's, that's what Eli Drinkwitz has. That's probably not anything that's going to stop you in your tracks, but he did it against the likes of LSU, Florida, Kentucky, Arkansas beat South Carolina twice. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not like he walked into a place that was loaded with talent. Speaking of program coming off sanctions, they were coming off the bowl ban 2020 or 2019, which was, somehow upheld and everybody pointed to the UNC situation and how ridiculous it was that they didn't get punished him as you did. But Let me tell y'all something. If y'all ever compare anything to that UNC situation, you're going to leave disappointed because that makes no <laughs> sense. Doesn't. And whatever you have going on at your university, if you say, well, UNC got off for what they did, but it's not going to go that way. I don't know what yes. to tell you. <laughs> yes. So I, th I think Napier is going to rise on this list. Mm -hmm. he, he will be higher than number 12 after this year. I, I, I feel very good about that. But until we actually see how he handles that job, what it looks like against the SEC competition, it's very, we talked about Brian Kelly, why we gave Brian Kelly the benefit of the doubt before he got to the SEC as opposed to Billy Napier. Brian Kelly's playing against Power 5 schedule. 
Billy Napier's not playing against power five schedule, not playing against that level of talent just mm-hmm. yet. I don't think that you can put him ahead of a couple of guys who I'd argue rose above expectations in the SEC already. So that's why I'm giving Napier the knock, and it looks worse than it is. I, I can't emphasize that point enough. But you came into this thinking that you were going to have to tell me why Napier wasn't as good as I thought he was. So this is all backwards. Yeah, so this is one of the most chaotic podcasts we've ever done. Uh, <laughs> it started off with the Stoops and A&M thing. And like, I just got to tell you, I, I know that I really should keep talking about this. But the first time we recorded this, I, my jaw was on the floor when you were talking about those draft picks. Like, I couldn't recreate the amount of shock that I had because literally I was like, say that again, say that again. With And like, usually I'm the one who's kind of like pushing back on stuff. Like, yeah, whatever. The, but that blew my mind about Stoops and Jimbo. And then I saw Billy Napier this low and I was like, oh my gosh. So it's almost like I feel like I have to be the voice of consensus here and talk you down from the ledge. But then you told me that thing about App State and that made me laugh super hard too because it's like, well, what record do we have to go against here? So yeah, I see your point. I'm not saying you're wrong. Like this is one of those things and I... I like I often say, whenever we're doing lists like this, people at this point of social media want to be not wrong. So yes. they want to rank all the same guys at the top and any guy that is. So I will give you credit for having a real time, like look at this. And 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 the thing about Billy Napier is he himself has said, and everyone around Florida has said, okay, well, this is going to be a rebuilding year. So we're going to judge him with that. You know what I'm saying? If we, if, if you put him number five or so, or if you, let's say, will it were very like bullish, uh, I don't know, right right behind Lane Kiffin, maybe? So, like, seven, eight type vibes. If you put him there, and then he won five, six, seven games, like he has basically come out and said that he's planning on, that would be disappointing, right? Yeah. So... I don't think I don't think that'll be disappointing. I think that he has set the table early. He said there's gonna be a multi-year rebuild. And how many times have we talked about on this podcast? Oh yeah, well that guy would never get that time today. You know, talking about some of these guys back in the day that were banging their head into the wall. Within you know, Mark Stoops is a great example. Mark Stoops was pretty not good for the first like three four years of his career, and then he got it on track. You know what I'm saying? And now he's consistently a winner. So it looks like it's pretty refreshing that Billy Napier and Florida are taking this long-term approach. But at the same time, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, oh, Billy Napier is a top five coach but we're not going to be disappointed with a six win season you know what i'm saying so i see what you're saying i would still personally put him about 10 uh just behind hypo and i think that that game is going to be very interesting this year uh they obviously had that weird game last year with mullen that had like some shades of joe milton in there wasn't really like the tennessee team cedric tillman kind of got like activated after that game so i don't really think that was an indication to be the program and it was like in the swamp but anyway i think that I think that rivalry is going to be electric. I think Tennessee and Florida is going to be electric because they both have great ADs. Looks like they both have really good coaches as far as we know. And I'm exactly right there with you. The first thing I ever said on this podcast is I thought Josh Heupel was going to struggle in this conference. And so far I've been very wrong. And so all we can do is go based on what we have. And like you said, and I, I we just got done talking about this with Brian Kelly. He has 10 straight, fi- or sorry, five straight 10 win finishes at a power five level. Ten win seasons, program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, but like at a glamorous program where they're playing top level competition. So you know what the floor is there with Billy Napier. It's like they, and, 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 and UL like growing up was not a, a, a premier program for sure. It wasn't on the level of app state, you know, like, like app state definitely, I think was a better job whenever Jinkowitz was there, you know, shout out Armani Edwards and those boys beating Michigan. I'll forever remember that. Like, but at the same time, you know, I, I, so I'll give him credit for what he's done so far, but I think there will be asterisks, for people that haven't won in the SEC. And like, we both hope, we both hope, and we both think that when we make this list again next year, he's going to be in that top half of coaches because he'll show us something, you know? Yeah. And it's really hard to get into that, that upper echelon. It is. Mm -hmm. And, 
I think it's you, you, but you do have to be able to to factor that in and not assume wins, not assume wins. But if we see that, we see that play out. And if Florida's better than South Carolina in mm-hmm. year one, and if they're if they're beaten up on Tennessee still, then yes, Billy Napier is going to rise on this list. I do not have any sort of vendetta against Billy Napier. I, I promise you that. And the um, tough thing about that too, when you talk about rookie head coaches, is like as much as we hate to see it, like recruiting factors in, man, it really does. And when you are a Mario Cristobal or Brian Kelly, and you come in and you have these top five, top six classes, it makes people think, okay, well, this guy's, you know, he's he's ready for the SEC. It might take Billy Napier, you know, a year or two to get to where he's in that top four, or top five that Florida should be, because we all agree. That's why I'm so hard on Florida. I think Florida's a top three or four job in the country whenever they're really hitting, like whenever urban was over there and they're like really hitting and they have that whole state on lockdown. I disagree. Start, you don't, the only thing Florida is that high. I, I think the, I think falling behind with the facilities was mm-hmm. pre- prevents that from being a top three, top four job. Now they're getting the new facilities are coming in. They're coming right. in. It's, it's going to be great to be able to have that and to be able to utilize that. But it's a it's a different discussion as we talk about it in the playoff era and the arms yep. race that has developed. And if you fell behind and if you were a program like Florida State or if you're a program like Miami <laughs> that didn't necessarily take heed of that advice of you better build it now, yep. you fell behind and you saw it. And that's that's the issue that I would have. So Florida has potential to be mm-hmm. a, a top three, top four job. And it was at one time. But mm-hmm. as of right now, I would not put it on that that short list until we actually see the fruits of their labor with these new facilities come you know come and we see the way that it plays out the next few years that's that's important too because i was thinking at the top i was thinking that once they get there once they are winning it's the three but you're right like at, where they're at right now probably not and so that's what i'm saying with napier he has such a big opportunity in front of him whereas like drinkowitz is a great coach and we both like him a lot what is the true ceiling of mizzou is mizzou is a place that can win we, we've physically witnessed florida win or at least i have i remember two national titles mizzou has been They've won the East. They've been really respectable or respectable in the SEC. But in terms of what the top end of that job is, if Billy Napier can get there, I think that's a, you know, that puts him in an echelon that is is untouchable. Not untouchable, but he could be where Kirby and Saban are one day. You know what I'm saying? Change how we feel about your ceiling. Yep. That's the best way to move up on this list. Yep. That that in my opinion is is what Mark Stoops has done a tremendous job mm-hmm. of doing. I think Sam Pittman has changed what I thought their year two ceiling could be. I think that there are, there are certain coaches that are on their way to doing that. Obviously, Nick Saban changed what we thought Alabama's <laughs> ceiling could be or what any program ceiling could be, and mm-hmm. Kirby Smart has been able to do that at Georgia, though obviously we, we had a little bit of a different feeling about the program that he inherited and the potential sleeping giant of Georgia. Okay, I'm going to run through this again. 14 down to one. Get a graphics team to uh, put something together so that I can get yelled at and people can <laughs> blast me on Instagram. That's fine. Whatever. Comes to territory. Um, okay. 14 Clark Lee, 13 Brian Harson, 12 Billy Napier, 11 Shane Beamer, 10 Eli Drinkwitz, 9 Josh Heupel, 8 Mike Leach, Sam Pittman at 7, 6 Lane Kiffin, 5 Jimbo Fisher, 4 Mark Stoops, 3 Brian Kelly, 2 Kirby Smart, 1 Nick Saban. We good? Everybody's okay with that? We made it through it. We survived it. That's fine. I think, right? Yeah, I think with with Harson, I mean, like you know, his whole his own administration isn't fired up about him. So hey, he'd be LSU. I know that. Uh, but he's got to show us something a little bit more. And then I will say, Shane Beamer has really impressed me. And and that that to me is why I understand where he is in relation to everybody because you, we talked about the offseason. He has one mess out of this offseason with bringing in uh Rattler, with bringing in the tight end Stockner. Yeah, and and so like like. 
as much as as dumb as it is, so much of modern coaching with social media is PR. And Beamer has done an amazing job since the season ended to really build up South Carolina, get in conversation for a lot of big recruits. Like that's a program that's totally done an about face since Spurrier took over. And we thought they were going to go right back down that hole. And it looks like they're kind of creeping back up to like something really respectable. Yeah. Fluid rankings. Keep that in mind, people. Very, very fluid. All right, let's kick it to John Talty. We dug into a lot of different pressing questions with Saban, including the story about the time that he almost left Alabama for a role on college game day after after the kick six happened. And yes, had to ask John about the Jeremy Pruitt Zaxby's story that he found out about in reporting for this book. So here is John Talty. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is AL.com's John Talty. John, uh, new book. It is, um, by the time that people are listening to this, it will be out very, very soon. The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban, How Alabama's Coach Became the Greatest Ever. I think there are some skeptics who heard me say that and were like, oh, great, another Saban biography. I'm telling the people at home, this is not that. And as you say in the intro, I mean, you literally say from the top, this is not a biography. This is a look at why Saban's methods have been fine-tuned and developed over the course of four plus decades as a coach. What inspired you to want to take this angle and and write something unique about Nick Saban? Yeah. I mean, and I thought while writing this book multiple times, this is I mean, writing biographies are very hard as well, but there were numerous times I thought, man, it'd be a lot easier if this was just a biography because you talk to a bunch of people, you start at the beginning, you get to the end, you chronological, it's it's very, you know, it's not simple, it's very hard, but there was was a more kind of like one, two, three step type thing to it. Whereas this book is more, every chapter is a theme, you know? And so I had to think about how each, you know, thing fit into each theme, how they could build off of each other. But big picture wise, you know, I've had this idea for, for years now, and it comes from a place of believing, you know, any sort of leader that has the success that Nick Saban has had, you know, you can look at Steve Jobs, you know, Thomas Edison, and I'm not saying that Nick Saban is Thomas Edison, but you think about people who have had a lot of success in their fields, that there has to be something in what they're doing that can work outside of what they're doing. And so that's kind of when I went into this with was, you know, we, we all know about the process and that's been written about ad nauseum. And there's a chapter in the process for people who don't know about it. But I realized that there had to be more to it. And so I went into this trying to understand not only the how that Nick Saban's had success, but the why, like the why he does what he does. What is going on behind the scenes that I maybe don't see every day that is leading to this incredible amount of success and taking those big picture ideas and writing them in a way that somebody who doesn't maybe know a lot about football can still get value out of it. Um, And so it was a little bit of a high wire act of giving enough interesting stuff in here for college football fans, for Alabama football fans, stuff they've never heard before. And I, I feel really confident that I've done that, but also not writing, but writing in a way that it's not so in the weeds that, Somebody like my mom, who doesn't care that much about college football, can still read and be, oh, that's interesting. Or that, or somebody who's a CEO in California can be, oh, there's value in this. I really like what he wrote here. So that was the balance that I tried to achieve. Above all else, Nick Saban is is a leader of men, and his ability to do that does translate to so many different fields. Putting the word secrets. And the title is genius, genius move. And I don't know if that was your doing, if that was a publisher's doing or where that came from. I want to be clear, like, as you said, there are nuggets in here that have never been reported on. We'll we'll get to those. The fact that you got 
hundreds of hours of interviews with people that, that Saban has worked with. Uh, that's why that these types of things are able to get in that book. It's because your original reporting, even something like the janitor being told that the floors have to be swept every single day, how that sends a message to recruits like Saban's desire to create, to control all elements is truly unmatched. And that's what you kind of get a, a good perception of and what you really are able to capture. I can't remember who shared the janitor nugget, but did you track down a janitor to hear if, if they had insights uh, on their guidance from Saban? So I did talk to some people who are more on the lower end of the totem pole. And it was interesting because I think for some of them, and one of them didn't want to be quoted, but it was almost a little intimidating, I think, for them initially. (laughs) Here is this guy who's running the organization who's telling me, like, I got to make sure that I keep this place clean every single day. But I think it's also, and, and I love that detail. When the person, when I first found out about it, I was like, oh man, it's definitely going to be a book. Like, I knew it was like, this is a winning detail. But what I love about it is that it's so, it's so smart in that he realized from day one, if this is actually going to be successful, I need everybody pulling the rope in the same direction. I can't have people fighting with each other. And he realized it's not just about having the offensive coordinator on board. You need every single person at every level of the organization to be on board with your mission. And so the best way to do that is to lay out in very clear terms, this is what our organization mission is. And for him, it was it all comes back to recruiting. And so if the floors are dirty, when a five-star recruit walks in, they're going to think less of us. If somebody's mom calls in and the secretary is rude to that mom, she's going to think less of us. Like those people are just as important in those initial first impressions as the offensive coordinator, as a receiver's coach, whatever it might be. They all are part of that operation. And when you talk, I've talked to a lot of people at work for Saban. And I think that's a real part of the secret sauce to that place is that everyone feels important. Everyone feels like their job is critical to the operation, whether you're the guy, one of my other favorite details in the book are some of the recruiting people and all the little details they have to dig up. And, you know, one of the guys found out this recruit liked mustard. And so he puts it in the report. This guy likes mustard. And like, that guy felt like his job was critical to the organization. And when you have that level of buy-in from the top to the bottom, that's when you're really going to achieve some important things. And we've obviously seen Saban have an incredible amount of success over the years. And I think that's a big reason why that he has your graduate assistants. They're all so all in to doing everything they need to do every single day to try to be successful. Yeah, it's one thing to to walk into a room full of boosters and be able to lay down the law and say, this is how it's going to be. It's been pretty widely reported that that's why he was able to have success at a place like Alabama. That's why certain other places, Auburn and Texas, kind of struggle with that issue with their head coach. And that's kind of an ongoing deal. But I, I think what what really, I think, surprises people with Saban is when they hear that he has any thought besides coaching football. And that news came out from your book, that that nugget that Saban seriously considered leaving Alabama for the TV gig at ESPN after kick six. The, tell us what you learned about that entire deal from the conversation that you had with uh, John Wildhack. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting time in Saban's career because he'd already won multiple, at that point, three national championships at Alabama. And around that same time, that same year or so, I remember there being a Wall Street Journal article that quoted Terry Saban. And she basically talked about how fans need to appreciate what's happening here more. You know, basically fans are getting a bit kind of complacent and just expecting to win every year. And it's actually really hard. And so it felt like there was some frustration maybe amongst the Sabans that 
people aren't appreciating how unprecedented what they were doing was. And so before the season even started, uh, this guy, Nick Khan, he's now the co-CEO of WWE, at the time was a, a high-level sports media agent, went down to Tuscaloosa to meet with Saban and to have that initial conversation basically of what does the future look like? And within that conversation, they talked about media, specifically ESPN, uh, and what could make sense for him moving forward. After the season, you have the famous kick six, which is, you know, there's a detail in the book talking about, you know, it's probably the loss that Saban thinks about the most. I don't think he will ever, you know, forget about that game. Then he loses uh, in the Sugar Bowl to Oklahoma. It just Those guys just didn't even show up. And it felt like he was at a point of frustration and also just considering what else is there out, what else is there for me? And that's one of the things that John said that it felt like talking to Saban, Saban was going through the idea of if it's not Alabama, what do I want to do? Where do I want to be? And it's at that same time that, you know, the, which has been much reported at this point, all the Texas rumors. And you know, there's only probably a few people in the world who know how close he got to going to Texas, but, you know, depending on who you talk to, it, it was a serious consideration. The ESPN thing has never been written about until now. And it really kind of think flew under the radar that he was interested in this, but has a meeting out in California specifically zeroed in on what a role at college game day would look like. That's what he, I think, realized was the premier brand for ESPN when it came to college football. That's what he was most interested in. Uh, they had a really good conversation. It was John Wildhack, now the Syracuse AD, his agent, Jimmy Sexton, Nick Saban. Uh, they shared some food together. They had a conversation. Uh, you know, ESPN felt like they had a shot at him. Um, but, you know, afterwards, basically Saban, you know, through Nick Khan said, you know, he really appreciated it, was really interested, but ultimately, you know, after thinking about it, taking some time, felt like he still had some coaching left in him. Um, he has since won three national championships. So I would say uh, he was right. He did uh, have some coaching left in him, but it was something he really thought about. And I think ultimately, if he eventually leaves college football, well, I guess he has to at some point, right? Uh if he wants another job, I think TV will be a big part of that because I think he really does enjoy being on TV. He's very good at it. And I think part of what he likes about it is that he can prepare a somewhat similar way. You know, he can grind tape. He can try to find little things that nobody's seen before that he can you know, explain to people on TV. And one of the things I think he's best at, and I write about this in the book, He's really good. Anytime you listen to him talk about football, he's really good at taking very complicated topics and kind of compressing them in a way and simplifying them in a way that's very easy for anyone to understand. You know, when he talks about football, be like, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. He doesn't, he's not a jargon heavy guy the way some coaches are, where they want to throw all these random terms at you. Like he doesn't really do that. And so he's, whenever I've seen him on TV, I think he's very good. I think he realizes he's good and that's a potential path for him, but it's a, uh, it's a fascinating what if, if he leaves in that moment, what else happens to the college football landscape? It's kind of amazing that we didn't hear about that for what, eight and a half years after that meeting took place or it hasn't really been seriously reported on. And, you know, it kind of, kind of thinking about college game day and, you know, people can say what they want about, about Corso, the, the guy's a legend and it's going to be difficult to replace him when that time comes. And I don't necessarily think that his eventual replacement needs to be someone who is just like him and is a carbon copy because I mean, I don't know if that exists. I, I truly don't. I, I just think it needs to be someone who is apologetically themselves. And that could come in a variety of forms. I don't know if that's uh, Pat McAfee. He's unapologetically himself. I think Booker McFarlane is unapologetically himself. The I'm done coaching version of Saban 
could be that type of guy where you're hanging on his every word. And that's going to be the most important thing when that time comes. Just, it makes way more sense to, for him to be on that stage, in my opinion, than it does a studio job, something like that, where he's kind of confined. He's not necessarily getting the college atmosphere. I, I see that as, as a perfect fit for college game day and a way to kind of get some of those, those people back who feel like the show is too much fluff now, because that's the biggest criticism. And if you brought Nick Saban on board, and I don't even know what that media contract looked like in a post Tom Brady to Fox world, but that changes the game. In my opinion, did you get a sense that that could be something I know we talked about, you know, that him being open to that idea, but is that the most likely post coaching path for Saban is college game day? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I do think he would be great. And I think back to, you know, for all of his flaws that we have since seen, you know, Urban Meyer was really good, <laughs> really good. And I think that you saw that show start getting traction because of Urban. You know, you wanted to hear what Urban had to say. And I think Saban has obviously a lot less warts than Urban Meyer does. I think it would be even amplified yeah beyond what Urban did. So I, I think he would be awesome at it. And even Wild Hack says in the book, like if we could have gotten him on game day, it would have been a slam dunk. Like we have no doubt we would have crushed it with him. So in the book, you know, one of the things that Saban, I guess, kept bringing up in this meeting, and I've heard him talk about it elsewhere as well. He always comes back to wanting to be part of a team, right? That's what he keeps saying. Like I've been part of a team since I was nine years old, whatever I wanted, you know, I want I want that feeling. And I think that would be the toughest thing for any job to replicate moving forward, you know, could I mean, this book, I think I hope proves it. Like, could you make Saban a CEO of a company? Absolutely. And I have no doubt that he would make it a highly efficient company. Could that feel like a team to him? I think it could. Now, I don't know what that exact job would look like, um, you know, but I think he, his skills translate actually to a lot of different areas. I don't see him as a guy who's just going to retire and golf and hang out with Miss Terry. I think he's just He's wired to work too much that I don't think he can ever fully retire. So it could be ESPN. It could be running a business. You know, I think until the end of time, people will throw out his name for being a football czar or something like that. Whether that job will ever exist, I don't know. But I do think he'd be great at it because I think he thinks about the game in a really smart manner and would have some really good perspectives on college football should that job ever be created. Of all the people that you interviewed for this book, who was the most interesting and why? That's a great question. I haven't been asked that question yet. I would say one of the things that I learned with this book, I'll give a, be a little, little journalism secret here. Uh, I think that, you know, you, so when I started writing this book, you reach out to some of the, you know, the obvious names and they were all great, you know, some of the, but what I learned and some of my favorite stories came from people who you don't know who they are. You, know, you wouldn't know who that person was because they've never been asked their stories before. And that's where some of the, you know, some of these lower level guys had such interesting perspectives because they were, you know, getting Saban at a different time. And you could tell that's probably been the most interesting thing they've ever done in their careers, you know, is working for Nick Saban. So they remember those stories with incredible amount of detail. Whereas, you know, talking to Lane Kiffin or Greg McElroy, those guys, you know, they, they always have great stories, but they've also told their stories many times. Yeah. So you feel like you're getting something new out of them is a little harder versus some guy who's probably never been interviewed before and is only just telling his buddies some of these stories. That guy's like, oh, I've got like 10 stories for you. And that, those were some of the ones that, that I really enjoyed. Um, but I also, I, I really enjoyed 
there are a couple of guys quoted in here that from like the Toledo era that I really enjoyed. One of them, I mean, ended up, he's now the Chicago Bears head coach, Matt Eberflus. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, he was awesome. And what was so cool about it, I mean, again, now the guy's the Bears head coach, like he could remember in exact detail, like the first time he met Saban, you know, the first time he had a big play and how Saban reacted. Like it was so obvious the impact Nick Saban had on this guy that I thought was so cool that like he could remember those details that, you know, Saban's coached thousands of players. I, I doubt Nick Saban remembers that moment, but for the guy who his life might've changed in that moment, he remembers it with crystal details. And so those early 1990, 1989, whatever Toledo guys, like where they're getting, you know, 30 something year old, hard charging Nick Saban. Those are some of the fun stories. And that's the importance of going back to the one year that he spent at Toledo, because if you look at Saban's situation now, you'd say, why wouldn't you listen to that guy? Given the rings, given what he's done in this sport, of course, if you're an 18-year-old kid, wide-eyed, you're going to walk into the facility and do everything that man says. But when it's 1989 and they're a, a team in the MAC and they've won six games and they're like, all right, yeah, we feel pretty good about ourselves. And then he just comes in there and like everybody's going through these conditioning workouts and they're keeled over and they're puking and they quickly realize, oh, this dude is legit. And then they win, you know, a, a share of the conference title and things just kind of take off. That, in my opinion, is kind of what makes Saban and, and his skill set translate. It's not just as simple as, well, win and then you'll figure everything out. You need to have that model in place when you're first starting out. And at the same time, does he do the things that he did in 1989? Like, no way. Like, there's there's no way. And that the process has been so, so fine-tuned. And it, it, it was really interesting to kind of see those original roots and the way that you report on that is, is very interesting. Um, okay. You knew it was going to come. Got to ask about the Pruitt-Zaxby's story that didn't make the cut in the book, but you tweeted this out. Give us the, the background of that. Who told you about that interaction? And why does Jeremy Pruitt just have the worst food takes? Yeah, just an incredible food take. Like That was <laughs> one of those, uh, when somebody told me that, I think I want to say it was right around my deadline. Like I, There just wasn't a place for it. Like It was just like, I know this is an incredible anecdote. I know that I want to use it somehow, but I don't know what to do of it. But yeah, so, you know, and it speaks to, it speaks to who Saban is uh, in that. So if you people haven't seen the tweet that I had, you know, Saban and, and Pruitt recruiting, to trying to find some place to, to eat, uh, you know, talking about different options. Pruitt suggests Zaxby's uh, and uh, Nick Saban in a profane way uh, does not know what a Zaxby's is. And so then Pruitt, uh, a, again, a man who, if you've never watched MTV's two days, Famously did not know what asparagus was. Unreal. Uh, still one of my favorite TV moments of all time. I can remember where I was when I saw that <laughs> in, uh, back in New Jersey. And so then he has to explain to Nick Saban what a Zaxby's is. And he settles on describing it as a classier Chick-fil-A, which it's just, it's just like, oh man, come on. I mean, Jeremy, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, again, Zaxby's popped up in my mentions real fast after that story. They love that. They're branding around that take. Uh, but I don't think anyone other than Jeremy Pruitt or maybe Zaxby's itself has ever referred to it as a classier Chick-fil-A. Wait, because you didn't get that from Pruitt. That, that came from yeah. somebody on the inside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got that story, uh, which it was just hilarious to me. But this is... And this is another, I forget the exact, there's a restaurant in Tuscaloosa. I forget what it was called, but there's, 
for years, like Nick Saban, I don't know if it was on his radio show or something like that, would get asked about like his favorite place to eat, whatever. And he would talk about this like meatloaf he got from this one restaurant. And turns out the place had been closed for years. And so it's either like Saban locked in this like one answer. So I'm just going to use it for everything. Or some poor person out there is having to recreate a meatloaf similar to the one that he got from this one restaurant that's been closed. But that's just just who he is. Like he's so locked into what he's doing that I think like I describe it in the book at one point, like he's almost like a horse of blinders on. Like if it's not like in his line of vision, he just doesn't see it, doesn't know it exists. And, you know. It's one of my favorite games. And I mean, maybe this is, I'll use this for another book, but like, I just, I'm so fascinated by what he does and doesn't know of. Like, yes. You know, like how much, again, and somebody told me, it was like, I don't think he's been in a grocery store for at least a decade, but I would love to just like one day be like, all right, like Nick, like how much do you think milk costs? Like, what do you think the most popular fast food restaurant is currently? Like, I would just love to go down the line. I'm just like current event type stuff. Cause I don't think he pays attention to any of it. We won't get that while he's a coach just because that would be used as negative recruiting in some way. It's all about recruiting again with, with Saban, as we know, but a post coaching Saban doing a segment on college game day where he just gets peppered from some, from some Gen Z in the media about all these different things would be incredible. Oh my God. That two minute clip would go so viral. Just like question after question, like, what is this? Give me like rapid fire answer. Cause nobody can ask like people say like, Oh, why don't you guys just ask that in a press conference? It's like, he can move over that crap. It's so easily you wouldn't even get him to get an eye at you. That would get just laughed off and he would brush past that. Like there's no way any of us could get away with asking something like that. Whereas like Leach or Kiffin or something would actually play into it. Yeah. It has to be some, and it would have to be like the right setting, the yeah. right person asking, you know, I don't know exactly who that person is, but like, like he, he can have fun, but like, again, this is something in the book too. Like his brand is very controlled, you know, like he's not going to do anything that he doesn't want to do. He, he, you know, and I don't, I don't know if this made it into the book, but like even the stuff that Alabama football puts out about him on social media is like very controlled. Like they don't want a certain image of him out there. And so He's let his hair down a little bit. I think he's more fun um, than he used to be. And I think he, that's purposeful. I think he's trying to show a softer side of himself, but I don't think he's quite at rapid fire question yet, but like, I, I think you could have a lot of fun if it if somebody eventually does it. One of the things I also found interesting was how you highlighted that athletic departments have spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to essentially tap into Saban's leadership secrets by hiring one of his disciples only to watch it fail miserably, of course. And we talked about that a lot with the Belichick tree and all these different things. Pruitt is the latest example where Tennessee essentially said, well, all right, well, you know what? You've worked under Saban, you've worked under Kirby. Surely you have enough knowledge to be able to, to, to make this work. And even if you have those secrets laid out, we haven't necessarily seen it translate all the time. There have been better examples of that, obviously. But what do you think is the biggest reason why it's so much easier said than done to practice these leadership principles because uh, like we were talking about before, once upon a time, Nick Saban was just a guy trying to figure it out at Toledo. Because it is really hard. You know, I think that's part of it. I mean, I think one of the things that is most amazing to me about Saban is his complete aversion to complacency. And when he has had success, now you could say this is sick, that he should enjoy it more, all of those different things. But when he wins, 
he flips it quick and he's thinking almost immediately, all right, how does this impact next year? What do I need to do? It's going to be harder. He's not the guy living off his success and talking about the good old days. I mean, one of the chapters, which deals with complacency, you know, talks about, you know, right after winning national championships, he's, he's doing 8 a.m. meetings the next day, yelling at his guys for not recruiting. You know, again, is that crazy? Maybe. But I think that's been an important part that he doesn't let that program slip when they've achieved success. Because I think he realizes that it takes even more work once you've had success to maintain it. So it's a longer way of explaining it's incredibly hard to actually live your life this way every single day. You know, when you think about the process, all right, focus on the process, not the results. Focus on what you can do every single day, not about just the ultimate goal. All right, pretty simple stuff, right? Big picture wise. But actually doing that every single day is super hard. I mean, I've tried to do it a little bit myself while writing this book. Like, all right, I'm going to try to think about just doing every day. And it's hard. Your mind naturally wanders to other things. And so you, I think you can tell some of these guys just haven't been disciplined enough to actually live their life that way every single day. The other thing that I, I think, and I think this is the last chapter in the book, is that if you're not wired to be like Nick Saban, or you're not, or it doesn't come naturally for you to do these things, doing a poor ripoff is not going to allow you to have more success than him. Like I think Saban and Kirby Smart, I think, are very, very similarly wired. And that's why I'm not surprised that Kirby Smart has had all the success that he's had. Like he is the most true disciple of Saban as there is. And that's, and I think he lives his life the closest to the Saban playbook as anybody. And that's why he's had all the success he has. Whereas some other guys, you know, you can tell they kind of do it haphazard or they kind of take a little bit here, a little bit there. They don't really buy into it or they're lazy about things. I mean, I remember Jeremy Pruitt from people that I've talked to, he was telling people, I don't know if it was the second year at Tennessee or something, but he was telling people, was like, man, you know, if I ever get fired, like I'll just go work for Nick again. Like that's not the mentality you want out of your head coach in the SEC. You don't want him already thinking about getting fired and going back to work at Alabama. I guarantee you Saban doesn't think that way. I guarantee you Kirby Smart doesn't think that way. And so sometimes guys who actually aren't that close to Saban, just because they're in the Saban tree, they get kind of looped in with him. And you can just tell some guys are actually very similar to him and try to do a lot like it. Some guys are not, and they're just getting some of the, oh, you work for Saban, maybe he'll give us some of that. And he's not actually really wired to deliver on that. Also, none of those other coaches have missed Terry. So, I mean, you know, it's all you can do. It's an important part. I mean, I think Miss Terry, you know, I think the two most important people in Saban's life outside of, you know, Miss Terry and Jimmy Sexton, his agent. I mean, those are the two people when he needs something, when he has a problem, when he has a question, those are the two people that he goes to. And, you know, they've been critically important for him throughout his career. And yeah, you're right. I mean, if Saban doesn't have that person taking ownership of all these other things of his life, he wouldn't have the ability to just really lock in and do what he does. And it shows how important a support system is for anything that you do, you know, whether it's what you and I do or being a football coach. Before I let you go, let's talk some uh, potential coaching vacancy stuff. You're always on top of that. Speaking of Pruitt, I floated his name out there for the UAB job when Bill Clark surprisingly stepped down. That was before the notice of allegations came in and you got the 18 level one violations. Uh, Does a potential show cause make him untouchable for a job like that? Or will that depend entirely on kind of the, the, 
the whatever sort of sanctions come out once we hear Tennessee's response to this? Yeah, I feel like he's untouchable for a bit. Um, yeah. I, mean, I do think there's a lot. I do think if there was an opportunity down the line, I, I do think Nick Saban, regardless to what maybe he thinks about Jeremy's Zaxby takes, he does think highly of Jeremy. And so I do think there would have been interest there. But, I, you know, in terms of SEC stuff, you know, Jeremy's NCAA problems are, are a major hurdle there. Um, and, you know, years ago wrote about Hugh Freeze getting blocked by the SEC for a couple of Alabama jobs. I think that would happen with Jeremy as well. UAB would be really interesting. I actually think he would do well at UAB. I, too. Uh, I think he fits it well. You know, North Alabama guy, I think he could recruit well there. You know, I, I know the UAB AD some, I, I, don't, I feel like that feels a little risky for him, not knowing exactly maybe what's coming down the line. I also, I mean, What's interesting is that UAB's AD is also a tennis, former Tennessee football player. And so that might be a, might be a tough sell uh, for him. But, I mean, it'd be interesting to see because I do think it's a fit there. Um, I think he'd be a fit, you know, South Alabama if that opened up down the line, things like that. So it's – I think Jeremy's probably in his best interest is to work in the NFL or something like that for maybe a couple of years and wait for some of this to blow over. And then, you know, maybe he can get a job down the line. We've both been asked a lot about Brian Harson and his future. What does he need to do to, to save his job? And the answer to that question feels like it comes back to not necessarily having a miracle season, but it comes back to Auburn's decision makers having a realistic expectation of what progress is and what it'll look like. Is there a world in which a seven and five season keeps Harson on the planes for year three? I think it could, uh, I mean, I, I think if we go back a year from now, I mean, a year, less, less six months ago, whatever it was, seven, six, seven, six, seven months ago, if he just wins the Iron Bowl, I don't think a lot of what ends up happening happens, right? Agreed. And so if that seven and five includes wins over Alabama and Georgia, and you can start talking yourself into, you know, we've got some momentum down the stretch, blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, I think it could. I mean, those guys, a lot of those powerful people at Auburn are obsessed with Alabama, you know, and it's something that they're that's in part why the standards are so challenging for anybody who walks in there. I mean, on paper, it feels tough, but you know, I think it just depends on what the wins are. Um, but I do know, I mean, I've done some temperature checks on the situation. Some of the key people who didn't like him uh, try to get rid of him uh, still don't like him and still would like to get rid of him. And so that's not going away. I don't really know. I mean, it's just going to be, it's tough to talk yourself into it working out really well, but you know, I guess if you could get some big wins and I think something that would be really critical for him is like, he's got to get some recruiting momentum going. Like it's just not happening right now. I mean, I guess he got, he got four star the other day. That's good. But you know, he's got to get some real momentum going there. Maybe that, you know, you sign a really highly rated class, Maybe you buy yourself another year or so. I'm like, listen, we got the future coming in here, but he hasn't shown an ability to recruit at the upper echelon of the SEC, and that's a problem for him as well. Mike Leach got his extension finally, which was not really being talked about enough, in my opinion, but that did happen before SEC media days. So barring something wild, he's probably not going anywhere. I say that because he would have been my answer to the following question. Besides Harson, who is the most likely SEC coach to get fired or alternatively, who could leave for another job? Because I've got one kind of flyer dark horse in mind. Yeah. So the answer for me probably would have been Leach. And I don't think you can completely rule, rule it out if things just 
completely go off the rails because in the S- in Mississippi, they have a four-year cap on contracts anyway. So your potential damages are a little bit limited there, which is good for them. I think it's been interesting to see some of the coverage around Drinkwitz um, in Missouri and what could happen there. Um, I like Drinkwitz. I think he's refreshing. I think he's funny. Um, he always has a good little, you know, barb here and there, but he's got to deliver some wins this year, you know, because I know Barry Odom wasn't sexy, but Barry Odom had them respectable and they, they did some pretty decent things there. So Drinkwitz, I think, has maybe a little more pressure than people know in part, just because people don't talk about Missouri that much. In terms of guys who could leave, that's a good one. Um, Jinkowitz is a different AD as well, too. That's, that's well, the thing yeah. that I keep coming back to. And like, I, I'm not saying I floated this idea out last year. It's like, if he has one of those years where they're like seven and five, they win that game that they're not supposed to win. And he's kind of like a little bit skeptical about his situation. He's not really getting what he feels like is the love. If Nebraska comes open, that's interesting. And that would piss off Mizzou fans to no end. If Drinkwitz left Mizzou for Nebraska, he'd be an enemy for life. Not saying I have any intel whatsoever on that, but that's like the one that I just kind of keep in the back of my mind, just in case there's any sort of rift, because as we've seen with coaches and ADs, you've got to be on the same page. And if you're not, sometimes those things can make all the difference. Yeah, and, and I think that like with, with the new AD, you know, and I've only met her a couple of times, seems super nice. It's hard to know, you know, what her feeling is on it, but I completely agree. I mean, it's always, you know, you like to know who your boss is and that they have, you know, something at stake with you. You know, like right now, you know, drink doesn't work out. I mean, none of that's going on Desiree, you know, she didn't hire him. And so it's a lot easier to cut ties versus, you know, I, I think what's been interesting with, you know, like down in Florida, for instance, like, you know, Strickland, I think he's got a lot invested in some of the hot Scott Strickland has a lot invested in some of these hires he's made. I mean, he, he's probably not going to get many more than what he just made. He really needs Billy Napier to work at this point. Um, but if you'd have him in the hires and AD, you're going to be like, all right, well, you know, I want my, I want my person. Yeah. I want to make my move. And so that'll be interesting. Uh, but one thing drink does have going in his favor is, you know, he's recruited some, some big names, which I think helps at least in terms of trying to sell your future. Last one for you. Over under one and a half more national titles for Saban. I like that. Uh, I'm going to go more. Uh, I think I think he wins one this year. Um, I mean, I think they're the favorite too. I mean, but if if they stay healthy and do what they can do, I think they can win one this year. And then it's basically, can you win one more after that? And you know, he'll be like 72, 73 years old. I mean, it would be pretty unprecedented, but like, again, that's just right. You know, having just written a book about him, like I'm just not going to count him out to do anything. And so I'll, I'll say he wins two more, which is probably ridiculous to say, but like, I mean, given his track record, I mean, it feels reasonable. John, this has been great. Uh, the leadership secrets of Nick Saban out August 9th. Go buy it. It is tremendous. Thanks for the time, man. Loved it. Thanks so much. How about this one? I call it bold and brash. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash, anybody but your team. Doesn't mean it has to be your rival. Doesn't have to be good. Doesn't have to be bad. But I figured this might be a better way to do bold and brash for preseason predictions about teams rather than have everybody just talk about why their team is going undefeated, which... 
look, every team is going undefeated. We can't forget that. They will. Everybody's going to be 12 and 0 this year, but this is probably maybe a little bit more realistic way to be able to poke some holes in some teams. Anybody but my team for me would essentially mean that I can't make any bold predictions about Chiswick or Moorhead. So, no UNC, mm-hmm. no Akron, although is Akron going to go undefeated? Probably. Not this of year. Of course. Eventually. Eventually. Just a kid there. from Akron that Joe Moorhead. He is. He talks about that all the time. Definitely not Pittsburgh, Akron. I will uh, say too that like your decision to just opt out of Indiana football fandom is one of the most admirable things I've ever seen because it would have truly produced one season of joy and almost nothing else. <laughs> every every three months, somebody on Twitter will say to me, Bro, you're an Indiana fan. You don't get it. And that because I don't have anything about Indiana in my bio or anything like that, just because I don't want to have to answer that. It's not right. that I'm not proud of where I went to school. Like everybody goes to school somewhere. But the fact that they they somebody has gone into the archives to find to dig up where I went to school and then to try and use that against me when my response could be, buddy, I, I stopped being a fan of Indiana football after like middle of my freshman year. <laughs> yeah. And again, how did that turn out for you? It's like Bomani giving up on the Falcons. It's like, what did I miss? Not much. Not much. Yeah. Didn't didn't go to school for Indiana football, went to school for Indiana basketball in terms of like just a program that you are going to be really into. And I am not alone in that. So you can't hurt me with your words, hating on Indiana <laughs> football. Anybody that wants to listen to this. Although there are certain, obviously like watching what they went through in 2020, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole here, but would you watching, be happy if Nebraska was good? Uh, I don't have any, any connection to the program itself. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of Nebraska football fan friends in my life and I would right. be happy for them in the same way. That's what I'm saying about, about Indiana. I have people that actively root for Indiana football, that it would be great to watch them be happy. But right. But you watching, personally do not care. Yeah. Don't care. Just don't care. Like it, it's great. It's great to see certain things like that, more happiness uh, on the timeline, whatever. But other than that, no, just doesn't doesn't really move the needle. I need I need to have that visual of those old Nebraska fans pounding the tables. I need that to happen forever. I need Nebraska to be bad so that those old Nebraska boobers could just be furious for the rest of their lives. Okay, that's all I have to say. <laughs> for those who don't know what Will is referring to, we're going to get to Bold Brash, I promise. For those who don't know what Will is referring to, he's referring to the story that I told about being in the Nebraska press box when I covered the team for a couple of years. That would have been 2013, 2014. And they say before every single game, there is no table pounding in the in the in the press box. And don't you know it? The second an opposing player busts loose for six yards, you hear the table pounding from the back row <laughs> because it's these people who are like Nebraska fans who are like 85, and maybe you've got like some former players up there or something like that. And I, I always think to myself, have these guys never seen somebody run for six yards on Nebraska? And then I'm reminded at the time, because again, this is 2013, 2014, not current day where they've been, mm-hmm. you know, very, very bad for the last uh, five seasons. They've been horrendous. They were decent in 2016, but I'm like, oh yeah, they really probably don't know what that's like. Yeah. And that's why they're so upset. Yeah, that was the only time a school shouldn't have fired Bo Pelini, actually. That was just, they yes. should have just kept him, actually. But yeah, no, that's that's always hilarious. I always think of that. And the fact that they had a sign that said no table pounding for that reason, and people yes. still pounded tables is incredible. Anyway. Love it. Okay, so my bold, my bold and brash predictions for things that aren't related to, to my teams. Tennessee beating Georgia on the record for that one. Mm-hmm. Others would be Utah making the playoff. I'd consider that bold. Quinn Ewers wins the Heisman. 
Um, but Texas still isn't going to a national championship and they still don't live up to that lofty preseason number one ranking that a certain coach gave to them. Oklahoma finishes ranked higher than USC. Big revenge mm-hmm. year for the Sooners, despite what happened with Kale Gundy. When it's one of the weirder August stories in recent memory that I just can't quite <laughs> fully make sense of that. There's going to be more stuff that comes out about that. Um, I have Ohio State beating Bama in the national championship. That doesn't feel too bold because probably going to be preseason number two, I would guess, Ohio State. Um, but yeah, those would be my bold ones. We have a lot of Facebook responses. We're not going to get to all of them. We're going to get to many, though. Um, really, really quick, my two are, I think Notre Dame is going to have it pretty rough this year. Um, I think that the recruiting has been good. But actually, if you look at their schedule, it's like the only Notre Dame schedule that I as an LSU fan would respect. Gauntlet. You have, Yeah, you have like Clemson, Ohio State, USC, like BYU, like all these teams that you're just like, okay, but like how much better than like them on a random Thursday are they? You know what I'm saying? So I think that Freeman is getting a lot of offseason love, but I think that just by the nature of their schedule is going to be probably a rougher year than a lot of people are expecting. And then also I am – uh I'm buying the Tennessee Kool-Aid, which I think is going to be bad for my health. We're um, sipping it. it we're, yeah, it's tough, man. We're both hen dogs. And like I said you know, previously, I was pretty low in hypo coming in. But now that you've proven me wrong, I feel like I'm on the bandwagon and prepared to potentially get you know dis- uh, disappointed in the other direction. But I'm ready. I love their offense. I, I was like talking about them just generally with one of my buddies. And he's like a big stats guy. And he was like listing Tillman and hen dogs numbers. And I was like, oh, my gosh, they're even better than I remember. Like This team was really good last year. I've never been sipping the Tennessee Kool-Aid as much as I have been this year too, which mm-hmm. I've, I've always been the people saying you need to stop chugging that. You're, you're going to choke. Yeah. It's you're not going to end well for you. Choking hazard of Tennessee, yeah. And now this year, I'm going to need somebody to tell me that. Although I have them going nine and three. It's not like I have them winning the East or something like that. Nine and three with a, win against, with a win against Georgia and Florida. Okay, I am chugging it, I guess. Yeah, but that's in second place. That's the thing. Like People are you want Tennessee to win the East? Like, no, I no, think no. second place is massive for them at this point. Yes. Speaking of second place in the division, our first one from, comes from Nick Ruark, who says Mississippi State football. He tagged them in this <laughs> Love that. Yeah, let him know. But, Yes, let him know. He says that they will finish second in the SEC West. That is really bold. And I'm not sure how many people realize how bold that is because, as I always like to say with Mississippi State and why it feels like they never get preseason love, is because they have one winning season in SEC play in the 21st century, and it was 2014, the year that they started off number one in the playoff poll, and it was like, whoa, Mississippi State is having a moment right now. Mm-hmm. that's it in terms of winning record ICC play in the 21st century to finish second in the West, you're going five and three, right? That's, we think that's what it would take. So this would be a very, a very good season by any stretch, historically speaking for Mississippi state to get there. I th- I thought I was the highest on Mississippi state by having them fourth in the West. And I was having people at SEC media days be like fourth. Really? There's no way I went on. <laughs> I went on off the bench the other day and I basically got laughed out of the room for suggesting that Mississippi state was going to finish better in the division than LSU. So you have LSU fifth. <laughs> Do I have fifth? Do yeah. I have fifth? Little you teaser. Tell me, I don't know. We haven't talked about the day. Like, you're saying these rankings like we discussed. I would do third. I'm sixth. Oh my God. All right. Yeah, whatever. Okay. We're going to keep it pushing. Let's We're going to keep it. That'll be a teaser. That'll be a teaser for crystal ball week, which we'll, we'll get into that very, very soon coming up here. You said uh, it to be clear. I wasn't trying yes. to let any cats out of the bag. I was just like, hold on. What? Yes. I said that I'm on record. Michael dark says Florida goes four and eight with losses to Utah, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, Tennessee. <laughs> 
Tennessee <laughs> twice. Two Tennessee losses in there. They just come right back around the town and yep. whoop them a second time. Yep. LSU, AM, and Florida State. He says they'll have more fun this year with Coach Billy. So that's really what matters. Okay. This is this has been a, a probably a tough pod for Florida fans to listen to because of our low expectations. Tell me how it worked out for McElwain and Mullen when they had great year ones. Tell me how that sustained success for them. Is winning bad next on the SDS podcast? There's there's just no correlation to year one success or year one failure and yeah. how it relates to long-term success. There is no proof. Like if you're really bad in your first year, it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get better. If you're really good in year one, it doesn't mean that you're going to get worse. It doesn't mean that you're going to be great. There are just no ways to mm-hmm. definitively say this is what this means after year one, and this is what this coach is going to do. So if 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 you're sitting there at seven and five, and you feel really good about Anthony Richardson, if your defense doesn't suck, if you're competitive in most games that you play, like you're competitive in the losses as well, and Georgia, even if Georgia is a repeat of last year, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It might mm-hmm. be tough. It might be a really tough two year stretch to endure if it is, as Michael predicted, four and eight. But Keep the bigger picture in mind. If I say nothing else to Florida fans, this pod, keep the bigger picture in mind. I am once again defending Billy Napier. I don't. I don't, I don't think, think they're going to go four and eight. I don't think four wins <laughs> is possible. I like. Like I, we're laughing about it, but like they have Tennessee up there twice. Like, I, I can't find another loss. Like, my buddy, my buddy Perry texted me. Uh, Perry's, as people know, big Georgia fan, and he listens to this podcast. So shout out to Perry. And he texted me the other day. He's like, man, I can see an 0-4 start for Florida. And I'm like, Perry, Perry, Perry. USF is – you talk about sorry. Did <laughs> they he are, think they were going to lose the U.S.? Okay. He's, like, he said right. he didn't predict it. He didn't predict it. He said, I could see a path for 0-4. 1-3 is more realistic. Considering they start off the season, home game against Utah, playoff bound Utah, some are saying. They have Kentucky on the schedule. They have Tennessee in those first four games. It's a tough First four, one and three is certainly possible. Own four ain't happening. Yeah, it's not happening. So, Florida fans, you will beat USF. <laughs> so. uh, let's. Josh Walden says, uh, "Can Ball State pull off the victory?" He's talking about Tennessee, by the way. No, chirp, chirp, not happening. Tennessee's winning the opener. This is not a repeat of Georgia State. Our good friend Sean Elliott, who shocked the world, twenty nineteen, not happening. Emery Picker. Emory says, BYU makes the playoff. They have the best schedule in football, and they have 67% of returning production from a 10-win team. Emory undersold them. I think they have 88% of returning production. They're number two in that great stat that Bill Connolly puts together, percentage of returning production. Mm-hmm. And, buddy, like Jaron Hall, their quarterback who took over after Zach Wilson. Uh, Zach Wilson went to the NFL, was really good last year. And at one point last year, I remember Barrett Salee saying, Watch out for you, for BYU in the playoff. And I'm thinking to myself, like, are they? And then their schedule kind of got the best of them. I almost, almost put them as my playoff dark horse this year. But that playoff schedule to get there, because they have Arkansas, they have Notre Dame, that's going to be really, really difficult. And then they play a bunch of Pac-12 teams as well. But they went six and they went six and one against the Pac-12 last year, or mm-hmm. six and one against Power Five competition last year. And Will's laughing because when we recorded this the first time, I said the exact same mistake. <laughs> and I immediately was like, that's a lot of Pac-12 teams. But they yep. didn't play a lot of Pac-12 teams. Yeah. Their lone loss was to Baylor. 
on the road, which pretty good team. Some would say. Yeah. Oh yeah. They have Baylor again this year too. So yeah, I, I don't know if, 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 if BYU has what it takes to be able to get to the playoff, but a very good team and Emory's right to be, to be bullish on them. Um, Tyler Lynn, Arkansas, second in the SEC West bold. Another podcast host might have said that me. I said that, um, crystal balls, crystal ball week is going to be great. Everybody's going to mm-hmm. love it. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds like it. Paige Cooper says Clemson will lose five games this year. If Clemson loses five games with that schedule, with what we think the ACC is going to be, again, what we think the ACC is going to be, everybody's predicting that the Coastal is just going to have everybody at four and four <laughs> the last mm-hmm. year of it and yep. how, how perfect that would be. If that happens to Clemson, the narrative around Dabo Sweeney would be fascinating mm-hmm. incredible what is Dabo going to be without his coordinators what does Dabo do to be able to all of a sudden go to the transfer portal we talked about this a few months ago is he going to be able to adapt I don't think that happens I also don't think they get to the playoff this year I don't I've talked myself out of that I think that the talent at the top is better than what Clemson has and unless Kate Klubnick turns into Trevor Lawrence 2.0 which history books tell us that's probably not going to happen mm-hmm. um I don't necessarily think they have that same sort of path to have a bounce back season and get to a national championship, win a national championship. Yeah. Our favorite game, right. Is find the losses because like, it's very easy to just be like, Oh yeah, this looks like an eight win team. This looks like an eight win team. But it's like, when you really try to find those five losses for Clemson, they have, uh, you know, I could see Miami. I could even maybe see South Carolina, Notre Dame possibly, you know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, we're at four. Like maybe if they lose all those games, but then they still got to lose to like Boston College or Syracuse or like, you know what I'm saying? Like their season would be so off the rails if they were doing that, that it would be like, you're almost losing more than five games. Yeah, at that point. Like, Clemson should still have probably maybe the best defensive line outside of Alabama, depending on like, do you consider Will Anderson, Dallas Turner, even though they play on the defensive line, like they're, I guess they're not part of the defensive line, but Clemson has in terms of just like the on paper defensive line, best in the country with, with Murphy, with Brzee, with Thomas, if Thomas is healthy, like they're gonna, they're gonna be mm-hmm. they're gonna be very good defensively. I don't expect a dramatic fall off even the in the post Brent Venables world. But five losses, man, ooh, that's bold. Um, let's skip through a couple of these here. We've got <laughs> Caleb Tillman not chugging the Tennessee Kool Aid with us. He says Tennessee with all their playmakers healthy go six and six. <laughs> I love that type of haterade because it's like of their own devices. No injuries. These boys are just sorry. <laughs> what's what's the coup to get Josh Heupel fired if they go six and six? <laughs> no, they wouldn't. I don't think they would do that. Probably not. I wouldn't bet my life on that. But if they go six and six, it's because their defense is a total train wreck. Hendon Hooker has regressed somewhat. There's more of a book on him in this offense. And there are too many frustrating droughts within games and as we talked about last year they could score against the 85 bears in the first quarter but they need to they know it and they, that's something they've been pretty open about talking about they need to be better after the first quarter and not just coming out of the break at halftime um but mm-hmm. that would be kind of the thing that would hold them back and then they're losing close games in theory because they maybe can't get these defensive stops and they're a fun team to watch at six and six but not a team that competes for a division title or anything like that um, let's do a couple more of these. Andrew Diacomo gave us a couple. He says Auburn goes one in seven in SEC play. If that plays out, Brian Harson does not make it to the Iron Bowl. 
I don't know what the cutoff point would be for him. Does he make it to November? Is probably the better question. If they go one yeah. and seven ICC play, their first five games are at home, and then they have the game at Georgia. Um, one and seven, man. There, there wouldn't be a lot of defending Brian Harson if that were the case. If in a Listen, backs they're not against trying to defend Brian Harson right now. <laughs> well, no, I think there are. I actually think there, there. Are, it has swung so far in the other direction. If it had just been a normal off season. I think people would be more negative about Brian Harson. That's kind of the crazy thing is that because you had to see what it was like for him to have his job called into question, the coup, how awkward yeah. it got. And because you got to see a human being buried in there, the narrative has changed about him where I think fans want to see him succeed. But if he doesn't succeed and if you're one in seven SEC play, there's just nothing that you can do to save your job. And if that happens in an us against the world type of year, then it's kind of like, ah, well, I guess, I guess you're not going to be the guy. And there's really not going to be a whole lot of people saying that he deserves to get more time, even though more times than not a coach getting fired after two years is usually premature. Although I don't like to use the hard and fast rule that we've talked about with Matt Barry on this podcast. I've been just Googling schedules this whole time. Sorry, real quick, but uh, <laughs> Auburn's schedule is so hilarious, dude. I love I love football schedules. It's so back loaded. There, yeah. So there's an actual like non-zero chance that they're like five and zero oh, because they play Mercer, San Jose State. They're home against Penn State in the game that they could have possibly won last year, like away. So I'm not gonna say that that's like a given Penn State W. And then it's. <laughs> two more home games against Mizzou and LSU. Now, if I was going to sit here and tell you that Auburn can't beat LSU, I'd be stupid. So I really, their hardest test is probably Penn State at home in there. Maybe, well, we don't know what LSU is going to be, but it's very possible that they are 5-0. and And then it's just Georgia, Ole Miss, Arkansas, Mississippi State, A&M, Western Kentucky, Alabama. So like pretty much this schedule is laid out for this dude to get fired. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's brutal. It, it absolutely is. And look, Maybe if we were talking about a year in which Auburn had the uh, Alabama-Georgia, if if both of those games were at home as opposed to being on the road. Oh, goodness. They are both on the road, aren't they? Yeah, this that's is the year that awful. Both on the road. How does that yeah. work? Anyway. Yeah. So that that's just what I always come back to. Whenever I map out this, this scenario in my head of Auburn having this magical out-of-nowhere <laughs> season, the Toby Keith season-long narrative, the how do you like me now, Mm-hmm. If that's happening, it, it's it's beyond my comprehension, not in a way that 2013 was, but in a way that I think is really hard to fathom at this point where we are in the calendar. Mm-hmm. All right, let's end with uh, let's end with this one from Joshua Morris. Joshua says, Alabama will not make it to the SEC championship, but Arkansas will play for the West against Georgia and be a slugfest all the way to the wire. And the end score will be Georgia 59, Arkansas 56 with a last second field goal to send Georgia to the playoff again. I'd be I'd be here for that. I think a lot of college football fans will, just in terms of seeing some new blood in the SEC championship, seeing Arkansas in there, having a an SEC championship reminiscent of 2013, what we got with Auburn and Mizzou, a game that was just back mm-hmm. and forth nonstop. You felt like both teams, last team with the ball was going to win. That'd be fun. Arkansas yeah. getting over the hump and getting to an SEC West title. I don't know that there are a lot of Arkansas fans who are expecting that. Of course, that game against Alabama, they're going to be ready to roll. That's mm-hmm. going to be one of the better atmospheres in all of college football this year. I truly believe that. 
being able to get to that 11 and one level in this division, they would be taking not just another step, a significant step forward. If that, if, if that happens at all. And if they're able to go toe to toe with Georgia like that, after what we just saw this past year with how big of a struggle that was with that game in Athens, that was over within like, I don't know, 10 minutes. It felt like where we were, we watched that game Huey bar together. in the New Zealander bar. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And we're like, Oh, this one's over. Can we flip on another, another game in the big TV and have this yeah. one go to the side TV? Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of the bold part of that that prediction, obviously. But as somebody who has Arkansas finishing second in the West, I guess I can't say that's entirely too bold. Anything else? I just want to read one really quick because yeah, far away. It's just this last one here. This is pure hater. Right? There's the, the two. This is just funny. Jeff Bard says F sucks. So I guess it's FSU will continue their misery in Miami. Don't come close to winning the ACC. Love it. Just I all my rivals. I wish on their demise. That is. You're like one, one and one, Brad. Wow, who's gonna? <laughs> That's it. I'm not taking anything from it. It's just a very funny sentence. I'm gonna get evicted from the Sunshine State after this podcast. It's gonna be really rough. So I mean, just... we're not supporting this. It's just a funny take. It's just like everyone that I like, good. Everyone, no, no, no. This was everyone else thing. So this guy's like, all my rivals are gonna have horrible years. Good. That's how college sports should feel. Will we have a Power Five team in Florida get to eight wins this year? Mm. I mean, Miami, I think Miami's going to be good. I think Miami might beat A&M. I think anyway, Miami's got the best path to do Why did I say that? I think Miami's going to beat A&M. And A&M's ranked like stupid high, the coaches too. You do? Oh, that yeah. is cool. Well, I mean, the, station too. yeah, the United Smith thing was like a part of that. And he's obviously like good to go now. Like by that, I think it's like week three, week four. Like he won't be suspended by then. Um, But yeah, I think that Miami is like returning a lot. They will have the better quarterback in the matchup. And I think that like Manny's got to make something shake, man. I'm 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 drinking the Manny Kool-Aid weirdly. I, Not uh, Manny, Mario. I'm sorry. Their names being so similar. To <laughs> Mario. I was going was, was to be slow to correct you on that because usually when I correct you, it's wrong and you're right. <laughs> His legal name is Manny. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. no, no, no. I appreciate you. I, I've done that a lot because they're so similar. They're just like cool ass names. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, good pod though. That was a lot of stuff. whole lot of stuff. We're going to have somebody on uh, next week. I'll just say it. Screw it. Uh, Bear Felica is coming on later this week, not next week, but later this week. And then we're going to have a really good one. Hopefully that's going to be early next week with a first time guest, somebody that I've been wanting to get on for a long, long time. So looking forward to that. If you have not leave us a five-star review Uh, again, we don't, we don't load you up with ads. So if you can do that Mm -hmm. for us, give us a five-star review. That would be, that's your good deed for the day. Go and do that. We would really appreciate it. Join the Facebook group, hear your name, red on air with figuring out or bold and brash. Thanks guys. Talk soon.